Hi. Good to see you guys. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Timothy. And we're going to make our home here this week. Every time I come to him, like, does anyone else's voice, you just lose it every time. I haven't been yelling it, just like the elements. Um, my name is Chris Hilkin. I'm from San Diego, California. Whoop, whoop. All right, just me. Sounds good. Um, how many of you guys have, uh, have we uh, done a camp together before? Okay, sorry about this. <laughs> Round two. You got to suffer through it. Um, as we look at this, something I think is important is, uh, especially as youth pastors, if I'm able to enter into that mind frame and enter into that world that I think we share as youth workers, is uh, you're tired, you're exhausted, you've got 11 through 18-year-olds who suck the life force out of you on a weekly basis. They don't know the word thank you. They don't understand the worldview you're pouring into them. They're, they're, they're underappreciative and they overask. You've got your EGR kids in your ministry. You all got, you know, EGR, extra grace required kids. <laughs> EGR kids. And they're, you know, <laughs> I don't have to tell you what that is. In your, you know exactly what I'm talking about in your youth group. They came to your mind immediately, Right. They wait till everyone else leaves and ask you for a ride home at the end of the night. They, they eat too much pizza. They're always wearing the wrong thing. You got to constantly correct them. And, and then it can, you can just have these whole seasons where you feel like you're not making a difference, you know? And I think as we go about doing that, the, the great danger in coming to a youth workers retreat and uh, that happens is twofold. One, um, we can fall into the trap of comparison quickly, right? What are you doing? How are you doing? How big is your youth group? How are things going? Um, what's the new coolest thing that you've done? What's the most creative thing that you've experienced? I think there's a place for that. I, I, uh, I just got done reading this book by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor, where anyone else read that book before? It's pretty fantastic. You, re- you really should. I think as a youth pastor, especially, you, th- you should read that book because it talks about... Um, the idea that when we do an excellent job, when we do good work, it's a Christ-like quality. That so often we slip into pragmatism, how effective is this? Where Tim basically says, so central to who we are as Christians is that we're doing what we've been called to do. Um, and I think in our youth ministries too, we, we tow this line between pursuing our calling and pursuing our potential. You know what I'm talking about? You can, al- you can always do more. You can always um, accomplish more. But the real question at the end of our life that Jesus seems to get to to every one of his disciples is, did you do what I've called you to do? Not did you maximize everything that you were possibly able Did you read every single book you could on the pragmatic side of ministry? And, and here's the biggest danger of youth ministry. You've learned how to do it well, you know? What I mean by that is, um, how long would it, if the Holy Spirit left your youth ministry today, how long would it take before we realized it? If the Holy Spirit was no longer active, how long could we run on our personal giftedness, on our ability to teach and preach and communicate and do all those things? How many games could we run and how many retreats could we pull off before we realized that the Spirit wasn't in it anymore? And I think that's dangerous, you know, as we kind of examine these things. And so when we jump into to 2 Timothy, we get a guy at the end of his life, right? Death is, is this great perspective giver. 
I don't know, I, I think a, a lot of you are probably familiar with my story, but last year I lost my wife to suicide um, after a, a, just like a whole life. No struggle with anxiety, no struggle with depression, anything. She received a catastrophic medical diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism, thought it was gonna kill her. And thinking it was gonna kill her, she just thought if I go to sleep, I'm gonna die. So she didn't sleep for 10 days straight. That led to deep trauma. That trauma manifested itself as multiple personalities, schizophrenia, um, and psychosis. Through that psychosis, she began to behave really erratically. I'm, I'm sorry, when I say erratically, um, I mean, my wife gave birth to all five of our kids, you know, like in seven years. She gave birth to our fifth kid in the corner of our bedroom in 59 minutes. Like, she was just a superhero. Um, started four different businesses, built them herself while homeschooling our kids. I don't even understand. Like, she won the national championship in softball on like June 6th of 2013 and then married me seven days later, which, what was she doing? But, <laughs> got her. Um, so there, there's, there's a big part, I think, of ministry, I think, for all of us where you're also wrapped up in the questions of life. Like, what the heck is going on? Why aren't you... Uh, intervening? Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you more active? Why aren't you? Um, the cool thing about youth workers retreat like this, especially without having students around, is I think it, it permits a new level of vulnerability for us to be tired and to be like worn out, but also to be encouraged and to be refocused. And, and I really do believe that when we are operating in our, in our proper lane as youth workers, exhaustion should not be a normal part of our experience. It just shouldn't. And, and, I, and I think Timothy has a lot to teach us here when we dive into it, which has been really cool to start to study this. And the power of Timothy, of Paul writing to Timothy, is it, it really does seem like their relationship was much more youth pastor to youth mentor, mentee than it is to uh, older pastor talking about a younger up-and-coming 39-year-old who just you know started his planted his Baptist church in downtown Houston. It just, it feels, I mean, like, Timothy's witnessing in Ephesus. Like, are, are y'all from California? Okay, so mostly, where are you from? Close enough. <laughs> Ephesus, modern day Ephesus, right? He's gonna talk about false teachings. Y'all know about that in Utah? You do? Interesting. <laughs> I wanna hear more about that later on. <laughs> But dang, what, it, what is the West Coast other than false teachings? And uh, Paul warns against it. In Acts chapter 20, he says, he says I give you three years, then there's going to be all kinds of gnarly uh, heterodiscaleo. It's this the really weird teaching, right? People are going to give in whatever their itching ears want to hear, they're going to listen to, they're going to tune into. And now we as youth pastors and youth workers get to compete with everyone in the country who might be teaching the truth or might be teaching uh, heterodidoscaleo, and we, we are trying to fight all these competing worldviews and everything, and you're tired, and, and now you get to go on Instagram and find out what every other youth pastor in America is doing, and thinking you got to do the same thing, and, but it's outside of what you actually are gifted at doing. You spend very little time actually with students because you're so busy dealing with their parents who are no longer helicopter parents. They're like snowplow parents. They, they don't even hover around anymore. They just clear the path for their kid, and they whine and complain about everything, but they don't actually participate. They don't probably give to the church. They don't really have a heart for, for ministry. They just want to throw rocks at you and you just want to quit. And if 
if this is where you are, welcome to Second Timothy. This is this dude's whole experience. This is what he's going through. Timothy wants to quit. First Timothy begins with Paul saying, I urge you to keep at it, right? This is emphatic. Please, it's a begging. Please don't quit. We need you. Man, I just think if Jesus could show up to this conference, he would start by going, don't quit. We need you. We need you, right? The role of youth pastor is relatively new in the world history. This was a responsibility of the father, historically speaking. And because of a lot of different stimulus in the last 2,000 years, our role as youth workers has become a necessity because of the lack of that in a lot of relationships, okay? I, I think that the number is close to 75% of households in America will go to bed with absent the biological father in the household. And in, di in different people groups, that number is even higher than that. It's bananas. So our, our work as youth pastors has become somewhat of a necessity. And shoot, man, 88%, I think the last statistic I read from the Barnett Group survey says that people who make a profession of faith do, do so before the age of 18. So we don't work with, we don't babysit people until they become the church. Dang it, we are, we're on the front lines. It seems like sometimes we celebrate like the 40-year-old who gives their life to Christ more so, but the 12-year-old who gets it for the first time, who the Holy Spirit enters into and they live a life that's faithful. It doesn't make the press, but that's, <laughs> that's, more, that's most of our stories. Am I right? That's my story. And, and you come from a lot of different church polities. Some of your, youth, your senior pastors are great. Maybe your senior pastor is here. He believes in your youth ministry. He believes in you. Others, it's just you're, you just... You, you provide a function so that the tithers can sit comfortably in church. And, and I feel that too. I understand that. And so I, I, the cool thing about Timothy is he does something twofold. Is As Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, it can be really hard. It can be really hard. But part of the time that we make it hard is because we're trying way too hard. And we're not relying on the, the power of the Spirit. I, I, what Spurgeon used to do when he, was, when he had a new batch of recruits to be preachers, he would take them to the graveyard and have them teach their sugar stick message. You guys know what I mean by sugar stick message? Y'all got one? It's like if right now I told you, like, what's your name? Elijah. Elijah. What do you do? Youth worker. Like, in, in what category? What do you? Um, Counselor, junior high, high school, youth pastor. High school leader. Leader. Sweet. Don't say just leader ever again, Elijah. You're not just the leader. What if I did that the whole time? No, no, I'm just gonna stop. Um, but if I said, Elijah, dude, there's like 45 kids in a room over there and they have no one to teach and I lost my voice and you go do something. Like, your sugar stick message is the one that you can pull out at any given point and you at least hit a triple every time, right? You've given it multiple times. You probably stole it from someone along the road like <laughs> Mark Driscoll, Andy Stanley, you know, like John Piper. You just pull it out and you're like, I got this one going. Um, <laughs> And so he would tell them, he, get, he, would, he would stand them in the cemetery and he'd say, preach the best message you've ever given. And then they would finish to all the gravestones. And he would say, look, this is the effect of your teaching without the Spirit. It's like preaching to dead men. You do nothing. Jesus is the founder and he's the finisher of our faith. And, and I think so often, even in our analytics, and the way that we measure how well we're doing, we look at these things that it seems to go contrary to what the Bible says. The, 
for the Father does not look at the things that are seen. He looks at the things that are unseen. He doesn't judge man by the outward appearance of what's going on inside, but yet almost every demographic we have or, or analytical tool we have as youth pastors is external, right? We haven't even started reading the book yet. I mean, where does it come from? Where does Timothy come from? Where is Timothy from? The really cool part about it is if you want to skip, do a little bit of a contextual history lesson, uh, open your Bibles to Acts chapter uh -oh, 14, I think 14. Acts 14. Okay, so uh, here's what we have. We have Paul going to Iconium at the beginning of 14. He does something cool. He makes a lame man walk again. And then people start to sacrifice to him and worship him and praise him, which yeah, it's not good. Um, so Paul and Barnabas, verse 3, spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Okay, so the signs and wonders that Paul and Barnabas were performing were to do what, the text says. Confirms the message that they were giving. It affirms what was happening. Okay, so th this is what we see a lot of time with miracles. We see people preaching something and then God going, I'm going to verify it because this guy can walk again, right? Jesus, how, what did Jesus tie the truth of his ministry to? Did he say, I am, John 1, uh, I am the word who's, who's become flesh before Abraham was, I am, trust me. And he backed it up. It says in the book of John, if you don't believe me, then believe what I have done. He points to what he's done. I do these miracles to confirm my message. And this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're confirming their message with signs and wonders. And so the response is the people of the city, verse 4, were divided. Some sided with the Jews, other with the apostles. There was a plot afoot, that's a fun word, among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and to stone them. But they found out about it and fled to like cities of Lystra and Derby into the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there said a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw the faith he had to be healed, and he called out, stand up on your feet. He jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he spoke a lot, <laughs> because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to the men. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes. That was a mark of blasphemy. Where else do we see this in the Gospels? Jesus stands before Pilate, or Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas questions him, are you the son of God, are you Mashiach? And he says, I am, ego eimi. Right? It's a reverberation of a divine name in the Old Testament. I am at this. The high priest tore his clothes and said, you, a man, claim to be equal with God. This is the proper response to blasphemy in their culture. So they say, you guys are God. So what does Paul do? Paul rips his clothing. That is blasphemy. What if we still did that today? Just, Right? No. Every like pop concert, you guys are gods. No. All the Christians walk out naked. That's why we stop some traditions. All right. Uh, friends, why are you doing this? 
We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in the past. He let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Right? This sounds like what else uh, Paul says in Romans 1, 19 through 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that man is without excuse. These are all pointing to God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare uh, your handiwork. Here's what it says, verse 18. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. <laughs> That's so funny. Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Okay, A lot of theologians believe he actually dies here. So we see a, res a resurrection event in some people's minds. Okay? This is part of God going, yikes, I'm not done with you yet, right? <laughs> Which Paul seemed pretty content to have, it, to have him be done with, right? Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. This, this, this scenario is it probably not um, anything less than ideal for him. He's like, I did it. I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. What am I doing? no. <laughs> I was so close. Oh, well, here I go, going back to preach. Gather, he got up and went back into the city the next day. He and Barnabas left for Derby. So we have a guy who walks in, preaches the message. It's confirmed by miracles. And then people either worship him as God and misdirect their worship, or they try to murder him, right? And we go, man. I think my ministry is better than that. I, like, I don't have either of those extremes. Like, no one's tried to kill me in a few weeks, and I, my students don't typically bow down and worship me. And yet, what we find out in the book of Timothy is there was a man who heard this message that Paul preached, who was not among the people trying to kill him, nor was he someone who worshiped him, but he becomes a young pastor. And in the middle of the story, someone's converted, who Paul's gonna write two letters to, and his name is Timothy. Timothy is from Lystra. He's in the audience of what's taking place. And though Paul's mission there felt like a failure, and externally we would probably go, you kind of biff that one, we actually see that the church leader in Ephesus come out of this. What seems like a failure to man is part of God's sovereign plan. So this is written, 2 Timothy, if you have your, we're going to flip back over there. This is written about the year 67 AD. Something neat about Paul is he's contemporaneous with Jesus. So they're, they're born almost the exact same time. So however old Jesus is is how old Paul is. However old Paul is past 33 is how old Jesus would have been if he would have remained human and stayed here on earth. Okay, So when Paul's 67, we know this is about 33 years after Jesus' resurrection because that's when he was killed was in 33, circa 33 AD, around there. So he's, he's older, right? He's not old, but he's older. For that day and age, he's fairly, he's up there, you know? And he's writing this from prison. And all uh, accounts seem to indicate that he's aware of his fate. Okay, he's, he's most likely, historians believe, was beheaded in Nero's circus in the year 67 to 68 AD. So he knows his sentence. He's writing from a, from a, a jail cell. Uh, things aren't going well for him, right? At least externally. But he still takes time to admonish, to encourage, and to teach, once again, his young Padawan, 
the one from Lystra, the one that he cares deeply about. And it seems like this is why he calls him my son is because he was the father of faith for him and he brought him to saving faith. Here's what it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promises of life that is in Christ Jesus. You gotta love the way that Paul starts his letters, okay? Paul, you're always gonna notice that Paul, all the epistles start with the guy's name because when you receive the letter, uh, was a scroll, right? And so you had to flip it all the way out. So they don't sign them like we sign ours at the bottom. They would sign at the top because you wouldn't get a letter and go, wait, who, who wrote this? Paul, roll it back up. So they would always start with it at the beginning. It's it a pragmatic reason. To Timothy, my dear son. Paul writes 13 epistles. Two of them have a triplet here and 11 of them have a duo here, right here. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. We only see the word mercy appear two times, and it's when Paul is going to direct himself to his youth pastor friend, to his youth pastor, Timothy. He includes mercy in there, right? Why? I, I love how one theologian put it. These are the three sisters of salvation, grace, mercy, and peace. Okay? Grace is the foundation of our faith. Mercy is the manifestation of our, of our, of our salvation, right? So, so grace is the foundation of our salvation. It's the, it's the way that was made for us. What is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not by works that no man can boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which then enables us, Ephesians 2, 10, to become God's handiwork. Grace is the foundation of our salvation. Mercy is the manifestation of our salvation. It allows us numbskulls who, it, like if, whenever someone has a life verse that's like joyful and happy, or whenever anyone, like, Whenever someone's like, how's your walk with Christ? I'm like, bro, your life with Christ feels like a walk? It doesn't feel like a walk to me. It feels like a Spartan run, you know? Like a Tough mutter. Like someone's always throwing some kind of frozen orb at me at all times. And I'm cold, and I'm muddy, and I'm getting beat down, and I'm getting pushed sideways, and I'm tired. This is what my life with Christ feels like. Yet, I press on towards the goal that I might claim the prize that is set before me. Grace is the foundation, mercy is the manifestation, and then peace is the consummation of our salvation. And again, it's, it, there's, there's something that's so interesting to me, particularly coming through this last season. Uh, I get really interested in the parts of Scripture where people deal with death. Maybe it's a little bit morbid, maybe a little bit macabre. I don't mean for it to be that way. But what I mean is, is, death, is death gives one gift in return for everything that it takes not just the promise of salvation that, I'm, that, that my wife is with Jesus in heaven. And that's not, it's not just that. It's in, and that's not just some novelty fact that we get as Christians. But, but death um, unintentionally gives another gift, which is called perspective. Death gives overwhelming perspective. And, and I know I'm preaching to the choir on this one, but when you experience tragedy in your life or you've lost someone close to you or you've experienced just brokenness or you've had all sorts of slanderous things said about you, perspective is this weird byproduct of suffering, isn't it? We, we, we are given this weird kind of parting gift is we see things through a different perspective. We, we, we take the world through a different lens. I remember trying, I tried to go back to work after Paige died. And I worked at a pretty big church in Southern California, North Coast Church, right? And I got to be a teaching pastor. And so you'd get up on a weekend and you'd teach. And there's like 12,000 people across like seven different campuses. And I remember sitting in one of the meetings where we were talking about what we were gonna do next strategically in order to like 
provide more um, insulation because someone was complaining about how hot it was in one of the kids' classrooms. Like, we were talking about this, and I didn't know what to do with it. It just felt like the goofiest thing I've ever heard in my life. Just going like, guys, you know there's people out there going to hell, right? Like, there's a, there's a broken world out there that needs Jesus. This is, what are we doing, you know? And there's a, pragma, there's a pragmatic side of ministry. I totally get that, right? But that perspective that we get sometimes in the middle of that loss, and that's why I think 2 Timothy is so in, interesting as well. This is a man's dying words, right? If you've ever known someone who's got terminal cancer, it's like what they say is, it's not written in red letters because that's obviously tear your clothes and it's blasphemous. But there's something uniquely special about that, that someone whose face, who knows it, which is ironic because is anyone here planning on living forever? No, but we've been given this, this kind of delusional gift of not knowing where we're kind of like, I'll never die, I'll never but people who know, it's just, you just hang on their words a little bit stronger. And with that perspective, I think diving into 2 Timothy is, is even more meaningful. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve. I'm reminded, um, I think it was D.L. Moody tells a story. He's actually quoting um, Chuck Spurgeon on this one. But this woman comes up to him after a conference and she says, would you tell my son to knock off this, this idea of ministry? He wants, to be, uh, he wants to be a youth minister. But he's got the grades and the accolades to go to the highest uh, schools in our country. He could be president of the United States. And Moody responds by saying, if the Lord has called him to be a slave for Christ, may he never stoop so low to become a king. Isn't that crazy? If he's called you to ministry, don't stoop to be a king. Don't give that up to be a king. That's... That's, like, that's profound. That's powerful. That, that's something else that Spurgeon says in the same thing. He writes a book called The Call to Ministry. And he says, um, uh, if you think you can do something else besides ministry, do that. If everything you do outside of ministry feels like wearing two left shoes or dancing with two left feet, then go into ministry. Because that's why you know the Lord's calling you to it. But you know this, like I do. The reason that we see people fall away all the time is because it wasn't, it might not have been a calling on their life. Or when the wind picks up and the storm comes, we see that, that happen, right? Um, it, it, Jesus even talks about, about being shepherds in, in John chapter 10. And when the thief comes and when scatters the flock, the shepherds stay, but the hired hand doesn't stay. Um, as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Okay, that that's, comes from sinicere, which means without wax. Okay, so when they used to sell pottery, the way that you would show and denote that it was, um, it was good pottery is you would mark it as sincere. So if uh, a piece of pottery broke, it was much more apt to break again, right? It has fault lines in it. But the way, the way they would repair it is they would actually melt candle wax and they would put it on the cracks in the pottery and they would smooth it over to make it look like it had never been cracked before. And if you sold someone a pot and you marked it sincere, it meant it had no wax. There was no fault in it. It, it, it wasn't apt to break again. And so it, it's this idea of being genuine. So whenever we see the word sincere that Paul writes, he loves this illustration in the New Testament. I want you to have sincere faith, not fake, not phony, um, not that you're perfect in everything that you do without wax kind of faith, okay? Having sincere faith. 
which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I, remi I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us, this, so, this is a great verse, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The spirit that God gives us is not one of timidity and fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. Which is why I think it's appropriate to say for a lot of us, the reason that we're so exhausted has less to do with us um, running out of all of our bandwidth and a lot more to do with our lack of reliance on the only one who can actually transform hearts and transform lives. This is, this is like my big folly of ministry. I'll go weeks, I'll do months, and I'll, I'll go like, wow, that seemed like a whole lot of me. And what does Paul say about it? Like, if anyone could have said, I'm pretty good at this whole apostleship thing, I'm pretty good at this whole teaching thing, right? Paul taught so long and so boring in certain times, what happened? People fell out of windows, right? Fell over, he died, <laughs> like fell out, fell out of a window and died, you know? And his ministry is so efficacious, not because Paul was some kind of, he's a dude with a thorn in his side. He was probably, he probably looked pretty old then in that case. And he's like going from city to city, gets bit by a snake, he gets shipwrecked, he gets stoned to death and comes back. He's like the thing that won't die. He preaches too long. And he, a lot of times, probably in a language that people don't even understand. They're like, what are you talking about? Using such big words all the time. Justification, sanctification, recreation, glorification, consummation. And yet people are saved. Why? And a lot of times they're not, right? We love to look at Mars Hill. Mar Paul goes up on Mars Hill and he contends for the faith. And what happens? A couple people come to faith. You know, it's not like, and they all gave their lives. Jesus draws, right? It's, it's his responsibility our job as the vessel is obedience. Doesn't make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-control. But for a lot of us, especially in this last season of ministry, shoot, if you lived through 2020 as a youth worker, I think you deserve a PhD in ministry. Like you just should get one. Like in one year, you went through like racial reconciliation and COVID and masks, no masks, and everyone trying to kill each other and, and everything that came along with it. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying all of those things didn't yield something in our churches that needed to be yielded and conversations came up that needed to, be, they needed to come up. But I can tell you one thing. What was so funny to me is I taught one of the weekends there. And at our church, at, at the church that I used to work at, I resigned after Paige passed away. But before that, I was teaching and uh, you, everyone gets to make a comment. We call them comment cards, which is a weird way of having people vote on how well you taught. It's like a weird concept, you know? I didn't like this point. Thank you, Brenda. That was constructive criticism. <laughs> I was like, what? This one girl wrote one time. She said, I don't like that you wear black shirts. I'm like, thank you so much. That's fantastic. It's great. Anyway, um... My favorite one of all time is someone just wrote a scene from um, Peanuts of a teacher teaching students. Wah, wah, wah. And the guy pointed to the bubble and said, whenever you teach, this is all I hear. <laughs> you guys, I have a drawer full that would just, it makes me so happy when I read that. 
Because I just go, come Lord Jesus quickly. (laughs) What the heck is happening? But I press on towards the goal. Just kidding. Um, What was I talking about before I got sidetracked? What? Verse 7, my man. Power, love, and self-discipline. So you not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's a weird invitation. Join me in the suffering by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. He's called us to a set-apart life. He's called us to a different life. Even, right, Paul's name changes. The word saulos or Saul in the original language means Desired. And his name changes to Palos, which means small. <laughs> God changes his name from the desired one to the small one. Don't you love that? This is this kind of, he, he gives everything up. It's all done. Um, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but is now being revealed through the appearing of our, of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light to the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know who I am. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching. This is massive in the Ephesian church, right? The book of Ephesians is written to heresy. The book of 1 Timothy is written to Timothy to say, keep keep moving and, and, and keep diligent in our faith because there's going to be false teachers. This idea of sound teaching is so important, as it is today. Um, this is one of the main roles that we have as youth workers. It's, it's not to affirm heresy, that nothing, no heresy affirmed on the altar of peace. Never, right? If we are one thing, we are to be holy and set apart in our message. With faith and love in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit. This is an interesting phrase, good deposit. It's a twofold thing. The good deposit is twofold. One, it's the good deposit that we make in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Okay, think about the idea of a deposit and then a withdrawal. The idea of investing in something worth investing in that has a good ROI, a good return on investment, is that what you put in is less than what you take out. The good deposit that God calls us to make is to put in your flesh, Put in your very life, your 70, 80 years, 60, 50, 40. And a lot of our cases, knowing people who have passed early, for my wife, 28 years. You give me your, James chapter 2, two vapor in the wind of a life. And you will receive a crown that lasts forever. This is a good, that's a good deposit. That's a worthwhile investment. Conversely, he seems to indicate that for each of us as followers, he has deposited into us gifts, abilities, and things that without using them or doing anything, they can sit stagnant your whole life. But he expects through the parable of the bags of money, through the parable of the talents, through the parable of the, of the, um, the, the shrewd manager, he expects a return on his investment. He has given us life. He's given us breath. He's given us intelligence. He's given us resources. He's given us mentorship. He's given us discipleship. He's given us every possible thing. He's implanted into us a mustard seed of faith. And on that last day, he will look us in the face and he will ask for a return on his deposit that he's made in us. And on that day, we have to have something to show for it. But everything that's going to matter on that day is going to be who was changed in the process 
by the preaching of the gospel. That is our primary ministry as followers of Jesus. That's our primary ministry as youth workers. Not that we, not to be a YMCA for kids. They have tasted the world and found it wanting. And we hold the truth. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including, don't you love that? Wouldn't you love to be included in the Bible for having deserted Paul? Don't you love how this makes canon? <laughs> it doesn't get deleted out over the centuries. Every time a scribe translates this, they're like, <laughs> these guys blew it. Uh, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he uh, often refreshed me, was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he has helped me in Ephesus. Here's what you're going to notice throughout the whole book of 2 Timothy. Not once does Paul give a breakdown of the five best practices to help your youth ministry grow. Not once does Paul talk to us about the pragmatic administrative responsibilities that we have as people. Not once does he help us with how creative we can be in our sermon planning. Not once does he talk about the new game that we can play. Not once, not once, not once. And, and I, I, here's what I love about what he's saying. Once we buy into the idea that a proper view of self, a proper view of gospel, and that we operate from victory and not for victory, I promise your youth group's gonna change. I promise you. That was the biggest thing in my head. I remember working for so many years going, I need people to understand that I can be victorious. And I was working for victory. I need people to see what's going on. I need people to see who's, who's, and then 2 Timothy comes along and he makes no deal about any of that stuff, does he? He doesn't even teach him something new. What's Paul's favorite word in this section? Remind. Let me remind you. Let me remind you. Let me remind you. And, and sometimes our very own itching ears can come to a conference and go, I need to be taught something new. You do not. You need to be reminded of something old that you stopped believing. I need to be reminded of things that I already know that I just lost sight of. You're in your position in your youth ministry not because Andy Stanley was busy. You're not in your position in youth ministry because the legendary youth pastor before you had to take another job. That might be the circumstances by which God cemented the call of where you are, but that's not why you're there. If you're in a position, it's because God's called you to that position. And when you understand that, when, we, when that sinks through our cerebellum and into our heartstrings, we operate then from victory and not for victory. We come from a place of having already achieved what we need to achieve, which is to be in the will of Christ. Instead of striving for, for some kind of acceptance or striving for something, well done, good and faithful servant is what we all want to hear. And that servant thing is about obedience, right? It's not well done, good and faithful, catalytic grower of great ministries. 
well done, good and faithful, creative entrepreneur of youth ministry. Can those things be beneficial? 100%. But see, God's mark on our life of if we've failed or succeeded is our faithfulness to our role, not as youth pastors, but as servants of him. Let me just end with three things that I think Paul's talking about that, that I think maybe takes a lot of the weight off of our shoulders as, as, as youth workers, as youth pastors, as youth leaders, as, as small group leaders, as counselors, whatever it might be. And I think what it does is it takes this bar that we might have set really high and it brings it pretty low. It's something that we can all do. Let me give you these three things when it comes to, our, to being uh, youth workers. We want to teach our students to wrestle as well as to worship. We want to teach our students to wrestle as well as we want to teach them to worship. Don't you let, I mean, Paul's, Paul writes this from prison. What's, what does Paul say in Romans chapter seven? He says, there's a lot of stuff that I don't want to do, but that's the stuff I always do. And there's a lot of stuff that I really should do that I don't do. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And sometimes I think the reason that some of us are exhausted, going back to the main thing that we started with, the reason that we're exhausted is we're, we keep portraying this super ego version of ourselves. The one that doesn't struggle, that doesn't wrestle, that doesn't have questions or doubts or insecurities or brokenness and these things. And, 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 and Paul seems just to be indicating to Timothy, get back in the fight. Expose your brokenness. It's okay. I want you to, he, he says right here, you are going to be a picture. This is what he says in 1 Timothy, actually. 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, God has done all this. He's saved a, the chief of sinners like me, Paul says, so that I might be a display of the patience of God for the people around me. My life is simply a demonstration of how patient God is with really messed up people. And I think in our parenting, something that I've realized as a parent, I've got five kids. There's a, that's a lot, right? But when I look back on my own childhood, and this isn't to say anything negative about my parents because I didn't come with a manual and I should have because I was a nightmare. But I think I'm, I'm more affected by my parents' perfection than I was by their sin. You know what I mean? And here's what I mean by that. I was more affected by their constant attempt to look perfect and they tell me that they were even when I knew they weren't than by their consistent apologizing and demonstrating how they messed up and how great God's grace was. I think as youth workers, our, our students need to see this is my process of sanctification every single day. Like when our students misbehave on trips and we go, how could you do that? Why don't you just do what I told you, right? I can't understand why you act like that. We unwittingly then, this is why we're so tired, we're trying to play this position as people who don't understand what disobeying God boldly means. Like the, the, I think the response that's better is, I totally understand wanting to rebel. I totally get it. Here's who we are in Christ and here's what we're going to do. But I, I understand. I got to repent of this every day. Apolog it means apologizing to our students. It means bringing people in and going like, I lost my temper there and I shouldn't have done that. That was really wrong of me. See, it actually sets the bar lower. Don't be perfect. Apologize boldly. This is the mark of Christianity. It's not perfection. It's repentance. You don't need to be perfect. Yay, the bar just got lower for youth pastors. Just apologize more. Just be vulnerable with what's going on. Wrestle as much as you worship. We need to teach tensions as well as we teach truisms. We need to teach the tensions of God as well as we teach the truisms of God. The truisms of God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a truism of who God is. We know 
that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. For those who God pre- before knew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He said the truism of the scripture. What are the tensions of scripture? God is a sovereign, almighty God who sees all things, and yet there's brokenness and there's suffering in the world. God is the almighty lion of Judah, but he's also the meek lamb of God. He is both of these things at the same time, and sometimes in our life, we're gonna struggle with the tension of, of living with God. And sometimes I think that's another thing that we hide. We hide the tensions in our heart where we go, how can I justify? And I think right here in the same way that it's a call to lower your bar. You don't have to sit there and act like you don't struggle with that stuff. And I think a lot of times our students are more confused by looking at us going, this isn't confusing for you at all? To go, yeah, it is. But I used to try life without Jesus and I promise you one thing, it was far more confusing then. And lastly, we can demonstrate our sanctification in the middle of our brokenness. What God's doing for us, even though we are being renewed every day, God's mercies are new every morning. And talking about that journey that we're going on in a lot of those different ways. The cool thing about Paul, I think especially when you dive into an epistle, you, you dive into the great apostle Paul. Like Time Magazine a few years back said that Paul was the second most influential man who's ever lived. And so when you read his book, you're like, oh, here we go. I'm going to get a shame fest. This is going to be a drive-by guilting. This is going to hurt. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. Your role is to be a slave to Christ, to do what he said. And the parable of the talents, what's funny, is those were not all going to be five-talent people. But the guy with two talents doesn't hear, you couldn't have had three more, does he? The guy with two talents who used two talents diligently, what was different about what he heard versus the five-talent person? Which words were different? None of them. Five-talent guy who invested his talents and made five more heard, well done, good and faithful servant. The one who had two talents and invested two talents heard, well done, good and faithful servant. I think a lot of times we spend a lot of our youth ministry here, out of our even like leading groups or having a hard week of bad discussion going, man, I wish I was X, I wish I was Y. A lot of times I think our students can even feel that. They can feel the burden of us using them to reach the people that we want them to bring in. We use the sheep in front of us to reach the sheep we don't have yet rather than loving the ones that are right there. And so this is, this is I mean, reading through Second Timothy has just been such a gift. Even studying it tonight just to, to think about that God takes us and he takes that fat burden we put on ourselves that we've been carrying around, that we've been measuring ourselves, measuring up to other people, and he refocuses us. And we got Paul on his deathbed, proverbially speaking, and he's saying, let me remind you of what's most important. He takes all the analytics, all the diagnostics out of everything, and he says, let's get back to the gospel. Let's get back to the core of who we are. You're broken. You're messed up. You used to have a spirit of timidity and fear. Now you have one of power, love, and self-control, you're still going to make mistakes. And sometimes your seasons are going to feel like you're not doing anything. But I promise you, you're planting seeds in the heart of people who might grow up and become a Timothy. They watched you in your brokenness and your struggle, getting stoned to death. And yet the words that you said and the, the, the demonstration of your godly character and of your brokenness and your repentance and your wrestle with God was enough to convince someone that this is who I want to be someday. Let's pray. God, thanks for your grace your mercy and your peace. Thank you for your grace 
your unmerited favor, the mercy, the withholding of the punishment that we deserve, and the peace, the knowledge of what's to come, the knowledge that we rest in you. That's, that's, Philippians 1 says it's the one that passes all understanding. It's not the one that the world has, Paul writes. The one that the world has is peace if there's no chaos. The peace that you offer is peace within the chaos. The peace of the world is a peace without a storm. The peace that you offer is the peace within the storm. God, some of us, that's the position we're in right now. This is our last ditch effort. We just need encouragement or we're ready to quit. And God, just like, just like Paul writes to Timothy, God, would you urge our hearts through the power of the Spirit to keep on, to fight the good fight is such a key motif of the book of Timothy. Would we be encouraged, uplifted, but more than anything, would we lay down the burden that we have of being youth pastor and, and, and just in this week at least, remember what it means to be your son and your daughter again and to crawl up in front of you, to worship you, to be renewed by you, not just by new ideas or creative problem solving, but by the reminder of our identity and who we are in you. Let's pray.